This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this is Eric Weaver, and I wanted to tell you about the North Star for Value. What is that exactly? Well, it's making sure that not only do we have improvement in costs, but we have improvement in outcomes for everyone. We must eliminate disparities across race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. The Institute for Advancing Health Value is bringing to you a virtual summit for leaders advancing health equity through value-based care. On November 30th, we're going to be screening the Color of Care documentary, which is uh, an important documentary that really shows the systemic issues we have in our society. And then on December 1st, we're going to have a full day of discussions that are really centered around how do we create health equity in our country This is Daniel Chipping, and we, the Institute, are so excited to bring this great event to you. We've got an incredible lineup of speakers, including Dr. Dora Hughes, the Chief Medical Officer of CMMI, Anish Chopra, the former U.S. Chief Technology Officer, and Dr. Olaywila, the Chief Health Equity Officer at Humana. We're going to be covering topics that span everything that you need to know about health equity and value-based care, including gender-affirming care. AI, data solutions, and so much more. And we really hope to see you there. And don't miss out on this important event Population Health Equity, the North Star for Value, a free virtual summit with everything that you need to know to advance health equity in your organization. Go to the link in the summary of this week's episode to learn more and register for this upcoming event. Race to Value listeners, we have a special episode today. We're interviewing Terry Hush, CEO of Roji Health Intelligence. Terry is a healthcare futurist and value-based care strategist with well over 25 years of experience across the healthcare spectrum. She's spoken at multitude of different events like the Managed Healthcare Forum. She's a prolific writer of value-based care, population health, APM adoption. She recently released an ebook that you can download for free, which is the focus of our podcast today, entitled How Medical Groups Can Navigate Value-Based Care. She's someone that's very vocal on the adoption of APMs, uh, which is the hallmark feature of value-based care. And, you know, I, I just really enjoyed our conversation with Terry. She definitely has a lot of insights around APM adoption and, and what's needed by providers to be successful in this new era of value-based care. 
Yeah, definitely agree, Eric. I think our listeners will appreciate hearing this conversation. And, and we dive into topics like consolidation and equity, some of the challenges that systems are facing with adopting APMs and, and the, the data that they need to have to be successful, the technology and infrastructure. And so, like you said, a lot of great insights and I'm happy to share this with our listeners today. Well, let's now hear from Terry Hush as she joins us in this episode of Race to Value. If you like what you hear, feel free to engage with Terry Moore. I know she's open for a, a quick call. She's out there supporting organizations in their uh, value journey. And also, if you enjoyed the content, definitely go to our website, subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss out on future episodes. And definitely, if you're so inclined, feel free to leave us a five-star on Apple Podcasts, leave a review. We love the support. And I'll go ahead now and hand it over to Terry Hush, CEO of Roji Health Intelligence, as she joins us in the Race to Value. Well, Terry, we're real excited to have you on the podcast this week. I mean, you're doing great work and defining a transition strategy for APM success. We had a bunch of questions for you. I know you're well studied. You're out there doing the work, supporting organizations and transformation. You're writing on this topic consistently. And so my first question for you is really around this battle that we have to get providers to even adopt alternative payment models. It seems like this has been going on for 10 years. Uh, we're making incremental progress, but overall the value movement is uh, happening at a glacial pace and we're still far behind goals. I mean, if we're ever going to get to that 2030 goal of having all Medicare beneficiaries in an accountable care relationship, the time to act is now. So I wanted to ask you, you know, what is different now in terms of getting providers to take action on APMs? Are we getting closer to, to reaching a critical mass? Well, I think we are, but you're asking a, an excellent question. In value-based care, we've been driving providers largely through regulation for 10 years. CMS was really the biggest force behind alternative payment models and ACOs. Private payers were negotiating these agreements and still are, but the reality is that the sheer magnitude of Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries in the mix is so much bigger, it gives them a lot of leverage. But now we see that changing, not because Medicare is getting any smaller, certainly, but there's new competition that's coming up through the pandemic, equity-backed medical groups, ACO enablers with venture capital funding, corporate healthcare, and that is forcing legacy health systems to change. Most important, those corporate healthcare organizations have built their future around APMs with population-based payments. And the advantage to them is that that creates a predictable revenue stream for them and their investors. And it captures the patient base that comes out of population-based payments. So those corporate healthcare actors are now purchasing physician practices and of course their patients are going with them. They are bigger than provider healthcare right now in terms of employment, which is the first year that that's actually happened. But to stay alive, that means the legacy systems will have to compete and that will become the driver instead of regulation going forward. Teresa, when you're talking about competition between these systems, you know, we see a lot of this healthcare competition. And oftentimes it looks like that the competition looks like consolidation, getting bigger, trying to take more of the market and control more of the market. And 
as you say, these systems are basically the backbone of our healthcare delivery system today. And what kind of threats are they under if they're not moving to alternative payment models, or if they are? Well, we can already see big losses out of the the last year for major systems, Cleveland Clinic, um, other major systems, national systems. And some of that has come from losses on investments, but not all. A lot of it has come because the bottom lines have shrunk and health systems will begin to wake up and see how they can survive. You're absolutely correct. They're the backbone because they also provide research and teaching capabilities. And what's being peeled off from them by the competition is direct patient services. And so they're going to have to figure out how they can be more efficient and attractive to consumers in a way that these other organizations have have started to be. So we see finances changing, competition emerging, consumers changing their ideas about healthcare, and systems that don't get on the plan of APMs will ultimately be in jeopardy, and they'll start devolving unprofitable lines of services. It's interesting to think about this dichotomy with with the health system consolidation. I mean, traditionally, it's always been about economies of scale and contracting leverage to get the biggest fee-for-service deal. And now we're seeing a lot of consolidation. I mean, not everywhere, but we are seeing consolidation in terms of thinking about that activation of a physician workforce and everyone really oriented around these important competencies related to successful execution of an APM strategy. And, you know, there's an underlying assumption there that you have to abandon fee-for-service at some point in the future. And I wanted to ask you just in terms of some of the fundamental changes that are going to have to take place for providers to to really go into this unknown future in value-based care to accept the reality of getting into APMs. I mean, why is that rationale so necessary? And does it have to be for these APMs to be successful? Well, I think it does have to be. Um, The biggest problem that we have right now is that the alignment of incentives towards value are non-existent. If you have reimbursement rewarding volume, which it does just by its very nature, you pay by service, the more services that you have, the better for your bottom line. And then you have the internal structures of incentives rewarding volume. Physicians and staff see that they're being rewarded or incentivized to get more volume all the time. They see who gets the perks, what services get marketed, who in the organization rises to the top, and they can't focus on value with those kind of counter incentives. So until the organization gets paid for better outcomes and efficiency rather than by the number of services they're providing, and the staff see those in the principles of their compensation and their other rewards, there won't be any progress towards successful APMs. But that said, you can't simply change the system and then not change everything that feeds into that system. So not just the compensation, but the the systems of tracking patient data, how they deal with consumers in general, how they um, aggregate information, and present it, how they structure their consumer-based strategies, all of that has to change in order for the APMs to be successful, but you can't do it without changing out of fee-for-service. 
So talking about the the changes that they need to go into population-based payment models, if they're really going to be successful at it, they have to understand how this new model is going to impact their revenues and how to predict those revenues and how to adjust their infrastructure accordingly. And what, what do you think they need to have in data and technology that's different than what they have now? Well, one of the benefits of the last two decades is that we've got a big adoption in EHRs, and we're already seeing a second round of EHR implementations by a lot of the hospitals in particular with, with practices, large practices, and they're looking towards more advanced EHR systems. But there's still a big lack of understanding about in the provider community that EHRs are not the same as a value-based technology. And they're going to need a lot more than what they're getting in an EHR. It's a great system for patient care, but it's actually the data that's in that system that should feed into a value-based technology. So what is that? That is the functionality to really identify patients by risk, to evaluate their outcomes, to look at their costs, their drivers, to package care into episodes so that you can see cost variation, to create essentially a depository that enables patient-centric interventions to improve care and evaluate what's working and what isn't. Not in just methods of improving care, but also in creating efficiencies in the system. To that, patient data needs to come claims, it needs to patient reported outcomes need to come from devices, directly from patients themselves. We need to be looking at prescribed um, inform, not just prescribed information that's in the EHR, but what prescriptions have actually been filled and on what basis. So it's a lot more data that needs to be there, but systems that are functional for going forward with value-based care is key. Well, I couldn't agree more, and I appreciate the comments that you made about electronic health records. I mean, when meaningful use happened, oh, must have been 14, 15 years ago at this point, there was this rationale like this is going to be transformative, and certainly we needed that technology backbone, but we all know that electronic health records are built on a fee-for-service chassis, and they're not optimized in a way to really create enhanced population health outcomes. So we have to look at a, a purview of technologies that are going to impact uh, patient engagement, uh, behavioral health customer relationship management and consumerism. Uh, we've got to look at care coordination, telehealth and virtual care capabilities, artificial intelligence, wearables. There's just a multitude of different technologies. And I'm thinking about the ideal technology infrastructure that's going to be needed for these APMs. And it's just simply not there now, even though the velocity of capital is moving in that direction. And we see a, a lot of uh, traction happening with startups and other companies that are uh, making some inroads there. But I wanted to ask you, is it realistic to expect that providers are going to invest in these technologies? Are they stalling in any way? Or, or do you see the industry moving directionally towards technology adoption in conjunction with APM adoption? I see the industry moving pretty fast, but not always with a complete understanding of what they need. And the reality is, is that when they begin to adopt APMs, they won't have the data they need to assess their level of cost and risk. 
But there are value-based care technologies out there that give them the major capabilities that they need to have right now, especially if they go into a vehicle like an ACO that's still upside risk for a while and then moves into downside risk, gives them a practice time. And most importantly, it gives them the claims data that along with their own system data can help identify. But we have technology right now that does what patients need to be seen like under value-based care and how providers need to act with the system. It isn't complete because there isn't the connection to the EMR that we need to have to get clinical information and interventions right in front of a provider. You need to have it all. But the systems aren't ready to even do it. Most of them have not advanced in their fire technology. They keep their EHR kind of sacrosanct and impermeable and don't want other sources of information in it. So there's got to be a cross between the value-based technology and the EHR that allow the two to talk to each other so that the information that's coming out of the functionality towards value can be seen by a clinician at point of care. And the, the substrate of that clinical level, which is population health, be acting on the risk and population-based kind of activities that need to go towards patients. So you mentioned claims data in that response, and I want to dig a little bit deeper into the data component of this because you know, we understand that uh, organizations have limited access to data. Oftentimes, there's, there are data that are pretty much invisible to providers, but it's important data to treating and understanding the patient. And so I'd, I'd love some examples of the data that are so critical to that care plan and to that treatment plan. And, and how do they work with that? How do they get the access to the data? What are those critical data pieces that are missing that they need to be seeking out? Well, there are two kinds of data that are missing. One is data that they put in, their clinicians put in notes or in parts of an EHR that can't be retrieved and used. And that's important too. Uh, that includes detailed diagnostic information, cancer staging information, information that gives you an eyes on COPD, for example, an FEV value for different genomic risk data. None of this is accessible and reportable by most EHRs right now. And we have clients that, are, that find it difficult to provide hemoglobin A1C information for diabetes, let alone more advanced diagnostic data. So that's one whole type. And we got to believe that they're collecting this information because you can't diagnose some of these conditions without these values, but they're not there. The second is social determinant information, which is a big area where providers are kind of flat-footed. Many of them are starting to adopt instruments to survey their patients, but they're not sure what to do with it, where to put the data, and how to use it in their systems right now. Then there's, um, as I mentioned, prescription drug usage, not just what's prescribed, because if the, the patient isn't using it, they're not following the treatment plan. Then there's like the treatment plan. The treatment plan itself is not a well-documented list of things in the EHR. You're going to find it in notes. 
in history and so on. But it's really difficult to ascertain whether someone, a clinician, is following a certain pathway, for example, and what have been the criteria for certain decisions that are made in the patient's care, what was a patient preference, what was not a patient preference. So better information overall on the patient preferences, on patient health data, either from devices or readings that they're doing or um, other origin of patient, like even the glucose monitoring, usually a third party kind of thing that doesn't get into the EHR. Then the whole layer of reasons why treatment plans are not working for the patient needs to be ferreted out in some kind of data point. So these are all related to interventions and risk prevention, but there's also what are the intervention effects on patients, what's really working to get patients out of a persistently poor control status where their outcomes are essentially flat over a period of years and they're just progressing more and more down the track towards serious disease and get them into a state where it's actually working for them? Is it community services, financial services, is it a self-management plan? No one's assessing these data points at all. The interventions are completely absent out of clinical systems. Well, Terry, so much of what I hear you talking about, it requires a leap of faith. It requires a strategy and a playbook for execution. And it also requires a, a culture of experimentation. And I'm reminded of a quote from Simon Sinek, who's someone I follow. He, had, he said once, you know, the value of experimentation is not the trying, it's the trying again after the experiment fails. And very much this journey to value is all about experimentation. I mean, I've been in those, in, in those leadership roles where you're working with providers and you're trying to get them oriented to value-based payment. And sometimes it's like throwing spaghetti at a wall to see if it sticks. <laughs> and I, I wanted to ask you just in terms of this this mindset of experimentation, there has to be, I think, a willingness to, to go into the depths of, of doing this work and not just giving it lip service. You also have to realize that not every ACO is the same. I mean, there's a saying I hear all the time, you've seen one ACO, you've seen one ACO. And that's why we, you know, on the Race to Value, you know, we create a platform to do the storytelling and highlight the bright spots and exemplars so people can glean insights and incorporate that in their own strategy. So I wanted to ask you just in terms of like, for our listeners out there, what should they be thinking when they start their APM? You know, how how should they proceed in the uh, this grand experiment to to ultimately get down the road to success in the race to value? Well, I think in every organization needs to assess its place in its own market. First of all, regardless of all the the generic principles about proceeding with APMs, they need to see what's going on. Who's their competition? Who are their networks that are stealing their physicians? What can they start with? What do they have internally? Do they already have existing EHR that's usable? Uh, do they have arrangements? Are they a must-have with some payers or not? So it's really a very individualized kind of survey that they need to assess. But the bottom line is that there are really only two options for starting APMs. They either start with Medicare and or Medicaid or private payers. Now, my view is that Medicare is more forgiving right now because they give you time to practice. 
if you're an ACO, um, it's a very slow ramp up, especially under the newly proposed rules. And organizations are not being forced to take on more risk. And CMS has been of late, I have to emphasize of late, much more open to allowing time for providers to mature. In fact, as the ACO reach process showed, they won't even approve organizations if they don't believe they're ready to assume population-based payments. So I think that says something to providers out there that Medicare may be a good place right now to go forward. Uh, the other huge advantage for Medicare is that there's an automatic access to claims data. And this is something that is a knockdown, drag out fight with private payers. Without claims data, you really can't see where else the patient is going, what other diagnoses the patients have, and therefore what risk, and how you can get a comprehensive view of that patient and what the ACO or organization, depending on the, the type of APM, needs to do to improve that patient care. So private payers are a popular outlet for starting, but really you're starting behind the eight ball without that claims data. And there isn't a really a good feedback loop on most private payers, but it's not universal. There may be a significant relationship that could be moved into an enhanced private arrangement. It's just very dependent on what that market looks like for the particular provider organization and what the payer is like. What the, what's the personality there? Terry, you know, as we think about the, some of the additional struggles that organizations have as they try to adopt population health and value-based payment models, we've seen the performance results that came out from the MSSP performance year 2021 that were just released a month or two ago. And, you know, we saw a positive net gain to CMS in the tune of $1.6 billion. It's the fifth year in a row that we've had a positive gain. CMS has realized positive gains from ACOs that have added up to almost $5.8 billion over these past five years. And so we know that ACOs are being successful in saving money. But then the proposed rules are changing benchmarks, changing fees, they're being penalized by cuts in fees. What is the incentive to providers for participating in these APMs when the rules keep changing and the amounts that they can save decrease? And help me understand the trust that they should be having in CMS for starting an APM. Well, I think that's a really good question, um, but you have to look at the history. ACOs have always been unhappy with not getting enough credit for savings. This has been since day one. And the problem is not that a particular ACO achieves good savings according to the algorithm. The problem really is that no one believes the algorithm for savings to be a true capture of potential savings. So you're, they're not being measured by how much they have saved but what people believe is possible to save by value-based care. And so that's a, a totally different perspective that the ACOs uh, don't see. They, they want credit for what they're doing. But the reality is, is that as they face this competition, they drove away from ACOs because of mandatory risk, not because of credit. They have a regulatory focus right now that in an environment where the competition is a bigger threat, 
And that's where they really need to think about uh, their future. No payer is ever going to be rewarded with trust, including and especially maybe the government. But the fact of the matter is that the world is changing. Value is where it's at. No one's talking a different game at this point. Everybody's focused on value. Everyone is focused on eliminating fee for service. Every possible pointing of the future goes into this concept. And so providers will either be playing in a payer's value game, which is what we had before under HMOs and PPOs, or they will have a role in directing patient value themselves by creating their own entity. It won't be anything else. There's no other option. Well, Terry, you've made the point in the past that physicians are voting with their feet for APMs and they're joining these equity-backed corporate practices. And I think we have a big debate happening in industry right now as to whether or not private equity is going to be successful in driving value transformation. I mean, right now we see that only 32% of primary care practices even work independently. They're joining these, you know, massively powerful primary care, PE-backed, full-risk, value-based MA physician aggregators. You know, we've seen uh, just a over the last few years, just a land grab for physician practices. I mean, one in five physician transactions involve primary care right now. And that's clearly a signal that investors are banking on profits to be made and the shift to value-based care. And we've even seen valuations of practices now where, you know, investors are paying anywhere between five to $10,000 per Medicare Advantage life. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you just in terms of the argument around physicians, you know, voting with their feet by uh, for APMs by joining these equity-backed practices. I'd love to get your take on that perspective and then also just what you see right now in terms of the trend with the infusion of uh, private equity capital backing and propping up a lot of these uh, independent providers and building out a, a BBC-related infrastructure? Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating experiment, if you will. And I, I don't doubt that if things go south on investment, you'll see a, a fleeing of equity away from some of these organizations. But in the end, what we see is that physicians are believing it. Physicians believe that they can get value out of this, and they are attracted to the, the fact that they have predictable reimbursement, that they have support. And so what this really should be telling traditional providers is that this is what they need to be providing to their physician base, or they're going to lose them. Will it succeed overall? I don't have a doubt that some of them will succeed. Not all of them, not maybe some of the uh, essentially franchised practice models that you see coming out there now that are backed by private equity, but certainly the some of the ACO enablers are, are really very carefully going about an APM kind of strategy, and they're supporting physicians in environments where physicians felt they weren't supported before. So I, I think it will remain an attractive model for primary care physicians, uh, because they haven't felt respected in large multi-specialty health systems for one, and they haven't been supported in those enterprises for another. Now, the health equity piece that's taking over the specialty practices is a different matter altogether. And it's fascinating because we see it emerging 
along with the most stupendous rise in AI in uh, some of the specialty arenas. So for example, ophthalmology. Ophthalmology is moving quickly towards maybe 100% equity back, yet you also see a very strong alignment there with a strategy that retinal imaging is like the predictor of the future for a lot. It's almost like going into the Star Trek you know, scan business to find out what's wrong with your body or what your future risks are. So will those kinds of entities continue to support advancement in research and technology? That's the question I see, and I don't, I don't know the answer to that right now. If it can't be financed by patient care, which it isn't under fee-for-service, but it could be under value-based care for a different construct, then that'll be how we look at the financing system of the future. How do we support these advanced technologies for patient care. Well, Terry, you know, that's that's an excellent point to be made. I mean, if we don't have private equity driving value transformation, then how is it going to come about? I mean, you could only promulgate payment models and policies and rules, and you could even mandate risk, but if providers don't have access to the capital, they're never going to be able to, to build the necessary infrastructure. And, you know, we've seen success with the advanced payment model, which was an early program uh, by CMS to invest in uh, ACOs that were serving rural and underserved communities. Communities, and then we saw a reiteration of that through the ACO investment model or the AIM program. And now there's continued debate about whether the government should continue to invest in providers that are adopting downside risk APMs. Can you maybe provide a perspective on the need for that and whether or not we need to see a continuation of that in the future? Well, I think that we need to, if the government is going to play a leadership role, and that's kind of the bottom line question there. Can government do that role effectively in the future? We've never seen government do a private investment that's been very successful long-term, right? The history of our country is around a business investment, innovation coming out of business, and not so much coming out of government. So to have the government finance the initiation of ACO, I think it makes sense in the short term. Because we still do have traditional providers not in an equity mode in business, and there's a way of capitalizing that investment in trade for going under the rules that CMS wants to structure. So CMS is doing, a, I think, a pretty excellent job of laying out the policies they want to see coming out of ACOs recently. They've really upped the ante on health equity. Now, whether that will be a long-term goal is, I think, still questionable. But for now, I think that they've really looked at outcomes, simplification, health equity, financing, cost drivers in a realistic way for providers. And so also financing the kind of push over the border of organizations who would like to but feel risk averse, then I, I think it's a short-term potential. Terry, you've shared some great insights with us today. And I think a great way to wrap up our conversation would be to talk about engaging physicians in their APMs. You know, we've got a wide range of APM options available, everything from, you know, very low risk, just upside only, all the way up to capitation and 
And I, I know the capitated models are a lot easier for physicians to be engaged in because it just lets them practice it in the way that they intended when they started medical school and removes a lot of the barriers for them that they're experiencing. But how do you keep physicians engaged in the APMs that are a little more difficult, that are a little more about reporting and administrative tasks and functions like risk adjustment and things that they're they're having to, to be tracking a lot more that they find more challenging? challenging, um, even though they know that the APM is the, the way they want to go in practicing medicine. How do you get them to stay engaged? Um, I have a couple answers to that. I mean, the first is, if they're engaging physicians in administrative matters, it means they don't really understand how to use their clinical information to engage physicians in clinical interventions. I mean, what we see in the data are a lot of patients that are coasting. Now, are they coasting because they can't afford medications or they're not adherent to treatment plans because they can't be? Or are they coasting because nobody's really helping them on the clinical level figure out what's wrong? You know, are they having side effects to particular drugs and so they're not staying on them? Or, you know, what is the problem there? Those are issues that need to be solved by the value-based care targeted interventions based on clinical criteria. And because ACOs right now have been so data insufficient and don't have value-based care technology, they haven't been able to target that. So they target based on administrative criteria, and that leaves physicians feeling pretty cold as it, as it should. So number one, they need to ensure that they're engaging their clinicians on clinical data. They need to be sharing costs in clinical data. Those two pieces of data should be combined. And the only way to realistically combine them in is, is in episodes of care where physicians can actually identify what goes into a particular cost that's higher than another patient's cost. And you see it just drop out of the data if you're comparing clinical episodes, which is done on conditions, it can be done on procedures. And it's the most important thing that I think to share with clinicians. Health systems should provide access for physicians to dig into it. Now, will most of them do that? No, most of them do it. Guaranteed that the surgeons will though. The surgeons will dig into outcome and notable observations in their data and the costs. They do do that. On the provider side, on the primary care provider side, what needs to happen is focus on the outcomes for those patients and the variation there. But the second thing to engage your physicians is to create their support network. We're asking physicians to do more than they can, things that can be done by other staff and compiled for the physician. There's a whole layer of support. It's not just population health, but healthcare coordinators, navigators who need to be the patient's first resource to understand what's going on with that patient and convey that to the clinician so that the clinician can actually make decisions with the patient. Terry, thank you so much for joining us this week in the Race to Value. Your role as a healthcare futurist and value-based care strategist 
is immensely helpful in transforming our industry through collaboration and consultation. And we clearly need the help right now if we're going to make some inroads to successful APM adoption and, and really reforming our nation's healthcare system. I'd love to ask you if, if you could share maybe some parting thoughts. Uh, you know, how can people find out more about your work at Roji Health Intelligence and, and engage with you should they need help in winning this race to value? Well, let me first mention that the first thing that your audience should do is download our free ebook, Your Smart Guide for APM Success, because that gives a lot of information on the topics that we've been talking about today. And it's a continuing work. We're continuing to publish more articles in that series. But right now we have part one of the ebook out, and we're um, we have a couple articles out on physician contracting with private payers and how to deal with health equity and so on. So all of those are available on our website, which is rogihealthintel.com. All one word, roji, R-O-J-I, healthintel.com. And uh, they can also look to that site for how to contact us and help us through their transition to APMs. Well, thank you so much, Terry, for being with us again this week, and we look forward to continued conversations and and appreciate all that you do in supporting organizations as they develop a winning strategy for APM success. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it.